This evening I um, wanted to talk about something that we touched upon, I think, in all of the groups today. And it's an area which is very central, certainly to the beginning of retreats. But it's also an area which is central, I think, to our lives. And I'd like to talk about staying in touch. Now, meditation is, in reality, a very simple path. And the heart of meditation is really concerned with learning again and again how to stay in touch. What we are learning all the time in our practice and on a retreat is about coming closer and being more intimate with what is actually happening in this moment. Coming closer to what is happening in our bodies, our feelings, our thoughts, our relationship to all things that arise in the moment. Although we are doing this in our practice, our minds are often trying to tell us that we are doing something else in meditation. And I think it's a common, a common assumption to think that meditation is actually a journey to somewhere else, somewhere apart and separate from what is happening right now. I think it's a common assumption to feel that meditation is a journey uh, to a different place, a different moment, and preferably a better moment than the one we're in right now. I think we often feel or find ourselves reaching in our mind the sense of reaching towards going to a different place that maybe has more calmness, more peace, more happiness, than, that is maybe more enlightened than where we feel ourselves to be in this moment. And that place that seems to hold all of these things that we long for, it feels as if that place is somewhere apart and somewhere separate from the moment that we're in. Now this desire for elsewhere, the desire to be somewhere else, arises most strongly, of course, when our present moment is uncomfortable or disturbing in some way. The more that we feel uncomfortable, the more the mind wants to jump out of the moment. The more that we feel inclined to jump out of the moment is also the degree of fierceness with which we struggle with where we are. In wanting to separate ourselves, from the moment, and wanting to jump away from what is happening, that movement is really, I think, backed and compelled by thought and by feeling. Our thoughts, when we're in the midst of a moment that feels uncomfortable or disturbing, our thoughts are telling us over and over, this is essentially not good enough. Our body and our mind, our feelingness, our feelings are telling us, this is not where we want to be. This is not who we want to be. And all that we want lies in a different moment that is going to bring with it a different experience. 
Now, this movement of the mind towards somewhere else is actually very contrary both to the practice that we do and to the spirit of meditation. Because the whole spirit or heart of meditation is that it is not a path to elsewhere. It is not a path of rejection or of striving, but that it is a path of returning again and again to where we are right now. I think sometimes that actually does sink in within ourselves. And then we might even conclude, well, this is the wrong path or the wrong tradition for us because we come to meditation or we practice because we don't want to be where we are or because we feel dissatisfied with who we are or with what we experience. I think there's one, there's an essential truth that we learn in meditation practice over and over and that is actually that no one has yet been able to bypass themselves on the way to peace, on the way to happiness, on the way to enlightenment. No one has ever yet invented a path in which there can be a con convenient disposal of ourselves, of the, all the things that we dislike, of the things that we feel dissatisfied with, that they can somehow be conveniently disposed of or forgotten about, and we can jump over them and suddenly find ourselves in a realm of eternal bliss and peace and happiness. If someone was to invent such a path, they would surely be the most popular esteemed teacher on earth. Some people may make that promise, but in the truth, I don't know whether it actually has been discovered. Where we are right now is the compost. It's the compost in which understanding grows. It is the most fertile ground in which understanding grows. Who we are right now, with all of our warts and weaknesses and frailties and imperfections and limitations, all of these things that we label about ourselves as being imperfect, who we are right now, that in that lies our invitation to discover new pathways of happiness, of compassion and understanding. What we are encountering right now in our lives, no matter whether it is pleasant or unpleasant, whether it's appalling or pleasing, what we are encountering right now in our lives holds all of the seeds of new possibilities, of new understanding of reality. Dogen a great Zen master once said, meditation is not a way to enlightenment, nor is it a method of achieving anything at all. Meditation is peace and blessedness in itself. It is the actualization of wisdom, the ultimate truth of the oneness of all things. Now, all of us probably have heard countless innumerable times in our practice and in our lives that meditation is the art of learning to be with what is. That peace is not the absence of the challenging or the, or the disturbing, but that peace is the capacity to be with what is without prejudice or judgment. 
and that meditation is learning to see things as they actually are without the shoulds or the musts or the projections or the colorings but to see things as they actually are and to live in harmony with their truth. We've heard endlessly in meditation that our practice is really not in any way uh, devoted to rearranging or redecorating the contents of our mind or our experience to suit our preferences or our desires. But that our practice is one of learning how to rest with balance and openness and clarity in the midst of all experiences. Now when we hear this over and over in meditation, of course, it, on one level intellectually it all makes perfect sense and often we nod our heads very wisely in agreement, particularly in those moments when nothing is disturbing us and when we aren't really craving after anything at all. We do then nod very wisely in agreement that we're happy to rest in the present moment. But how many times do we experience that the next moment can bring us a sensation or an experience or thought that holds even a glimmer of possibility of being unpleasant and we see how quickly we want to jump out of the moment. We want to jump out of where we are and find a refuge somewhere else. And we all have our favored ways of jumping out of the moment. For some people it is fantasy, for some people it is daydream, for some people it is planning, for some people it is memory. We all have our favored ways of learning to jump out of the moment and find a refuge. Or sometimes we see our sense of contentment or our sense of being able to rest in the moment shattered not by the possibility of the unpleasant but by the possibility of the pleasant. You know, that something can loom on the horizon that we don't have. You know, a, an experience, um, you know, an encounter, an object, a taste, a smell. It can be almost anything that looms on the horizon that we don't have in this moment. And suddenly our relationship to where we are alters drastically. It's no longer good enough. You know, contentment is gone. This is no longer good enough. This is actually offering me nothing. And our entire sense of of happiness and well-being and contentment suddenly seems to rest upon achieving or making contact with this person or thing that we suddenly desperately want. A moment ago we wanted nothing. Suddenly we desperately need this contact. A staying in touch is a lesson that we don't just learn once in our lives and then are perfect at it. Staying in touch is a lesson. How to stay in touch is a lesson that we are asked to learn over and over and over again. And I'll tell you a personal story. Last September, um, much to my surprise, I, I slipped a disc in my back and so suddenly, in my neck actually, 
And and then that was the beginning of of six months of more or less constant agony and pain. And it was an interesting, a totally interesting experience for me. You know, when you do some, when something goes amiss in your body or in your life or in your mind, and you suddenly feel that you're in some sort of distress, you discover how much incredibly good advice there is out there in the world. Like everybody has so much advice to offer you, and of course you're very, you know, you're very grateful for this advice because you'd like to address this pain. That was certainly the situation I found myself in. I'd like to address this pain. And certainly some of that advice was very helpful, and some of the support was very helpful. But what I began to find in my experience, that pretty soon I was in a position of consulting with all of these experts about my problem. And we would, you know, reflect upon my body together. You know, when you're young, you know, you read the Buddhist sutras about contemplating your body, and you think, this is nonsense. You get a little older, and suddenly you see how much time you spend contemplating your body, you know, and you contemplate in company, you know. You have all these people who contemplate your body together, and, you know, you look at all the things that are going wrong. And suddenly I found myself in this company of, of, of experts, and we all, our mission, our shared mission, actually, was to find a solution. That was, there was no doubt about it. That was the shared mission was to find a solution to this pain or to this difficulty. Um, I realized at some point that this looking for a solution was actually so much getting in the way of my actually being with what was. Um, That somehow that whole center of gravity shifted and it was no longer a relationship to this pain, but it was almost like the whole of my life, and it seemed a number of other people's lives, was dedicated to ending this pain. Now, of course, it's quite natural, you know, none of us want to stay with pain. You know, none of us want to stay with the uncomfortable. Of course, you know, and I'm not, certainly not suggesting that we should cherish pain, you know, and cultivate it. I mean, we don't need to do that, and that pain finds us in a number of ways without our you know, intentional pursuit. And it may be true in our lives that events happen that need addressing, you know, that we need to look at skillful responses and skillful ways of being with them. But around those events, and I knew this was taking place in my own life, around that event there was building another agenda. And the other agenda was about wanting to get rid of it about the demand for it to end, which had a certain intensity to it. Because the moment that relationship started of wanting this to end, actually also something happened to this pain. It became something that was happening to me. I was actually, I actually became a sort of victim in this pain. It became something that was happening to me. Not that it was happening, just happening within me, that I was in relationship with, but happening to me. And at some point, actually, I had this wonderful revelation of this shift of gravity. And I actually decided that it was time to surrender wanting this to end. That was what actually I needed to say. It was time to surrender. I didn't want this to end. In fact, I woke up in the morning and said, welcome, pain, you know, bring your friends, you know. Well, have a party. Well, you know... 
hang around for a while. I can say the wonderful transformation that actually happened, not that the pain disappeared right away, but the transformation in relationship. You know, and part of the revelation was, of course, you know the stuff I talk about all the time, you know, learning to be with what is, welcome whatever arises. It suddenly occurred to me, ah, this too. This too. You know, there are no exceptions. You know, there is no pain. There is no disturbance. There is no breakdown which is somehow exempt from this guideline to peace. There's nothing that is exempt. I thought, ah, this too. This too is welcome. Staying in touch. You know, it's about staying in touch with lightness, with gentleness, but with a heartfelt commitment. Learning how to do that is one of life's greatest challenges and greatest teachers. The poet Rilke said, I don't want to get rid of my demons because then the angels will also flee. Staying in touch with the pleasant may not seem like a particularly onerous task for us. You know, sometimes if we have a really delightful mind state or a really delightful feeling or sensation, a really lovely encounter with someone, we, see, we say to ourselves, you know, I'm really happy to be in touch here. I just want to stay in touch. I want to be here. I want to enjoy it. And I want it to last. Now, there is much in our world, obviously, that gladdens us, that delights us, that we appreciate, that brings happiness. But without wisdom, even within the pleasant, we forget what it means actually to stay in touch. Because what begins by staying in touch can also build its other agendas of, you know, how do I make this last? How do I preserve this? How can I hold on to this? And on one level, it may seem like we're really in harmony with the present, but we're not in harmony with life. Because even that which we are in touch with in our holding or wanting it to last, we're not even appreciating that this is already in the process of changing into something else. You know, whether we are grasping to the pleasant or grasping to the unpleasant, we are equally imprisoned and equally out of touch. The Czech poet and statesman Havel. He said, hatred has much in common with desire. With both come a fixation upon others, dependence on them, and in fact, a delegation of a piece of our identity to them. The hater longs for the object of his or her hatred, just as the lover longs for the object of his or her love. A staying in touch is really not about grasping. It's about connectedness and relatedness and sensitivity. And everything that we do in meditation practice is learning to be connected. We are learning to be connected with our breath, with our body, with the moment. And it is why, also why, 
meditation practice is at times so challenging and at times difficult for us. Because connectedness is an art. And many times in our lives, disconnection can become the way of our lives. As it is, I feel, one of the most chronic illnesses of our culture for different reasons. You know, there is in our world just so much pain, so much violence, so much anger, so much alienation in so many, many different forms that to see that, to truly be open to that, to stay in touch with that, for some people they feel that they will be filled with despair, that they need to close down or to harden their hearts in some ways, that to actually feel the pain, to stay in touch with the pain of our world or others or even ourselves, can somehow seem just too much to do. Once someone wrote, um, did a survey, well actually a book based upon interviewing and meeting with homeless people in San Francisco. And one of the people who was uh, told their story for this book said, you know what, one of the most painful things about being homeless is not the fact that you don't have any shelter or you don't know what tomorrow will bring and it's not because the police might come and hassle you or because you, you never know when you're going to get another meal. That the most painful thing about being homeless is that nobody ever looks you in the eye any longer. We can, I feel, disconnect in so many, many different ways in our lives, sometimes out of habit, and sometimes out of fear. We can disconnect from our bodies in many, many different ways. We can be a stranger to our bodies or not at home, not at ease within our bodies. Sometimes out of habit. How many times we, we walk and in our minds we have already arrived. You know, the actual movement, the actual walking is simply a stepping stone to arrival rather than something complete in itself. We can act and we can speak and yet even in the midst of that acting or speaking with another person, in our minds we have already traveled to the next moment, to the next contact. We're already having our next conversation even while we are in the place of being with someone. Sometimes we disconnect from our bodies out of fear or out of aversion. We don't like what's happening within them. Sometimes we just don't like our bodies. I read this incredible survey, <laughs> interview, why anyone would want to do this, about interviewing 500 women and 97% of them hated their thighs. <laughs> I mean, we could just disconnect in so many ways. I mean, there can be so many different reasons. We can be afraid of aging, of sickness, of death. We can also disconnect from our bodies out of aversion because they don't uh, conform to the models of the perfect body and the right body and the lovable body. There's a line in, in a book and it says, Mr. Duffy lived a short distance from his body. <laughs> And that can be so true for us as we can just live a short distance 
from our bodies, never really at home. And there is that sense of disconnection is experienced not only in our bodies, but it's really experienced in retreat. Have you noticed how easily disconnected you get from your mind and your feelings? I mean, sometimes it's just remarkable our capacity to jump out of this moment. Where mind states, feelings, thoughts, at times, they just seem to ambush us, or they just seem to come out of nowhere and just happen to us. Sometimes we we disconnect from our minds and thoughts and feelings because we fear their power, or because we resent, actually resent the lack of choice that we have over our thoughts. I mean, for some people, this is the issue. You know that? I mean, how many of your thoughts today did you choose? You know, did you begin to sit and think, it's a good sitting to fantasize, you know? You know, this is the best sitting, just to daydream or dwell on the past? Probably not so many. And sometimes I might, I think our mind feels like some kind of stranger to us. We don't know why it acts the way it does. You know, it can seem so unpredictable. We can be totally content, you know. Here we are in this lovely place. We're taken care of, you know. Everybody's looking after us. Nice food, you know. It's fairly comfortable. Spring is coming. Yeah, our mind, it can be like a stranger to us. You know, it's filled with, you know, violent fantasies, you know. Or, you know, it's often some other lifetime. As if this moment matters not at all. And it can seem so extraordinarily random. Sometimes we don't even know what we're thinking. We don't even know what we're feeling. You know, we know there's something going on. You know, there's certainly something going on when the bell rings and we, we thought we just began the sitting. You know, and it, it's over. And where were we? You know, sometimes we don't even know, and, and that is an extraordinary, this kind of meditative amnesia, you know, where we lose these huge chunks of time, and yet we were alive, you know, it wasn't like we were unconscious, well, in a way, maybe we weren't, but this, this, we lose these chunks of time, we're gone somewhere. It can be mysterious for us. But sometimes we say, well, this is not myself. You know, I don't feel myself. And then we wonder what that even means. I think this sense of disconnection can be so pervasive in our lives. And there's a, there's a wonderful Zen poem that says, Although I am in Kyoto when the cuckoo sings, I long to be in Kyoto. We're there. And we don't know it. We're longing to be there. We can see how disconnectedness is not confined in any specific way to our inner experience, but how it can actually be a thread in our lives, a thread in many people's lives. You know, that thread of feeling lonely or alienated or apart or mistrustful. That on one level we long to connect. I mean, this gives meaning to our lives. We long to connect. We long to be able to touch the heart of another person, to be touched. And yet that longing can seem so difficult to fulfill. 
I think there is also almost a kind of existential level of disconnection or a feeling of homelessness that actually grieves us deeply. We're on an ex- almost an existential level. We can simply feel isolated and apart. And so many people wonder about the, the sense of meaning in their lives, their sense of connection. And on a collective level, that sense of disconnection simply leads to so much despair, to feel that there is really no true bond, no true home in the world. We react. We react, I think, to this feeling of being apart in different ways. You know, when we don't feel at home in ourselves or at home in our world, then it does feel indeed that things just happen to us. Events, thoughts, feelings, changes in our bodies, they just seem to happen to us. And we react, I think, in sometimes some very extreme positions. One position when we feel disconnected is is to feel a victim, to feel submerged or powerless or frustrated or despairing. And the other extreme position when things seem to happen to us is to want to be a master to want to be in control, to dominate, to force our will upon our experience, a position of either succumbing or overcoming. These are the extreme positions, I think, that are responses to disconnection, that we succumb or that we overcome. The other position, I think, that we are sometimes tempted to call the middle path rather than succumb or to overcome is simply to avoid it altogether. Avoidance is probably the most frequently adopted mechanism of departing from the moment and departing from ourselves. We can jump out of our bodies, jump out of our minds, jump out of this moment into something that appears to offer us a greater refuge. Sometimes it's fantasy or daydream or future. Sometimes it's jumping into expectation. Fantasy is often seen to be a wonderful substitute for reality because fantasy offers us the dream of the perfect moment. You know, it offers us the dream of the perfect moment. And the more uncomfortable or the more challenging our present is, that is the degree to which we will try to avoid jumping either into past, to future, or to fantasy. Now, on one level, avoidance seems really logical. You know, I mean, we might ask ourselves, why should I stay in touch with the difficult? You know, why should I stay in touch with the challenging? It's really easy to avoid it on one level. You know, we know, you know, sitting there with an aching knee or a chaotic mind or, you know, if in our lives something is difficult or challenging, it's not that difficult to avoid it. You know, I mean, you find anyone, everyone can fantasize. We know we can move away. We can move away and, you know, we can go out to the village shop and buy a chocolate bar, you know. I mean, there are lots of different ways to avoid this moment. And it 
seems logical. Sometimes the question arises, you know, well, why on earth would anyone choose to stay in touch with the difficult or the challenging? When we disconnect through avoidance, what we actually do is we give power and authority to whatever we are disconnecting from. That is what we do. We give power and authority to whatever we are disconnecting from. We say, you know, this thought, this feeling, this circumstance, this event is greater and more powerful than my capacity to be with it. We surrender our own capacity to be with. We surrender our own capacity for balance and authority. And in doing so in avoidance, we actually often create an enemy, an opponent, out of whatever we are struggling with. And what do we do when we create an enemy or an opponent? We end up in a battle. And in that battle, there is always either a winner, we're either a winner or we're going to be a loser. It is a terribly fraught position to place ourselves in over and over again. In avoidance, we build fences. We build fences beyond which we feel we we can go. We feel they contain us. And yet those fences that are built out of being able to say, I can't, or through avoidance, those fences also in very real ways diminish us. And they certainly erode our sense of inner freedom. We stay with, we stay with the challenging, we stay with the disturbing, because this is where we learn about being free. It's simple, that is where we learn about not being imprisoned. It's where we learn about being free. Every time, I think, that we consciously engage in avoidance and disconnect from ourselves, we are exiling ourselves from this moment and from ourselves. And clearly, if we are not at home within our own being, we are not at home anywhere in this world. As staying in touch, staying close, as a great courage and a great sense of clarity and tremendous openness. You know, and to be very, very clear, because sometimes even staying in touch can have hidden agendas. You know, sometimes we've, you know, we've got this aching knee and we've tried every other strategy, you know, so finally we say, all right, none of them are working, I'm going to stay in touch because that's how I'm going to get it to change, you know, or that's how I'm going to get it to come to end. Even that, there can be the hidden agenda, which actually is a way, again, of disconnecting. Now, staying in touch is not an invitation in any way to resignation, to passivity, to lethargy. Staying in touch requires such clear responsiveness. Sometimes it's not a negation of outer action. It's not a negation of calling upon wisdom and support and, and help from others. It's not a negation of any of that. Staying in touch is about being related. It's about having a relatedness, a relationship, a way of being present in this moment that is alive and vital. 
when we are in touch, there is nothing that just happens to us. You know, many times in our life, those moments when we want to jump away are times that we define ourselves as having a problem. Now, I personally think there's a great value in looking at the nature of what that means. What does it mean to have a problem? I and mean, maybe, maybe you've had a problem today, you know, with your mind or feelings. Maybe you felt at some point today, oh, I've got this problem. You know, or in your life, you know, I'm sure you can find a time when you've thought, oh, I really have this problem. And what is the nature of a problem for us? Sometimes we feel we have a problem because we feel that there's a, a lack of understanding, a clarity about what we're experiencing. Sometimes we say we have a problem because we feel that um, there's a sense of struggle or aversion or a feeling of unpleasantness or painfulness. Now notice that we, you know, very rare, it's very rare to ever meet anybody who says, you know, I have a real problem with my compassion, you know, I have a real problem, you know, with my loving kindness, you know, I have a real problem with my generosity. No, it's generally not in this area. The areas where we define ourselves as having a problem is where there is unpleasant or painful. It is very personal to us when we feel we have a problem. It's something that we feel we can't let go of or we can't get out of. We feel imprisoned. You know, this is not news to us in our life. I think probably the first coherent sentence we ever say in our lives is, it's not fair. You know, it's not fair. This is happening to me. This shouldn't be happening to me. When we feel that sense of struggle or aversion, what we do is it separates us from what we are experiencing. Aversion or resistance separates us from what we are experiencing. Sometimes very willingly, you know, because we don't want to experience this thing we call the problem, whether it's an unpleasant sensation or a knotted feeling or a memory from the past. We want to separate. Now, in that separation, we already have a position, obviously, of ownership. You know, we say, this is what I have. I am. It is very personal to me. Or being owned by. Now, think of your meditation here, you know, which is a microcosmic view of your life. You know, you know, you had something happen today, you know, a, a mind state of restlessness or dullness or, you know, an aching knee. And you say, you know, I have this. I have this. This is my problem. Amen? That sense of not being able to get out. And think of the aversion, when there is aversion or resistance, how we are both separated from what we're experiencing and yet also in a position of ownership or of being owned by. We're both separated and stuck. The worst of all possible worlds. You know, we are separated and now, what difference, and, and also appreciating that when we are separated, our perception of what we're experiencing changes. Our perception is that there's nothing changing. That is our position when we are separated because we're not in touch with really the pulse, the life of what we're experiencing. Because we're separated, our perception is like there's nothing changing. This is eternal. 
You know, this is forever. This is always going to stay the same. We can't even see the changes that are happening in that very moment. We want to flee, and yet we are stuck. Now, what difference would it make if we were able and willing actually to set aside the distance? Now, we can't just decide or intend to set aside the unpleasant or the, the painful or the disturbing. This is not within our realm of control. But is it possible for us, actually, to set aside the sense of distance? What difference would it make to us to turn towards that which we are struggling with? Now, fear and courage, doubt and trust, clarity and confusion, disconnection and communion, superficially, these always seem like very opposites, opposed to each other, extreme positions. You know, we often think, well, you know, we'll find courage after we've got over fear, or we'll learn how to trust after we've got rid of doubt, or we'll learn how to be open after we've overcome our, our tendency towards being closed. What we accept as being polarized extremes are actually the yin and the yang of our lives. They are not polarized in any way. Trust is actually lies in the very same moment, in the very same place as doubt. You know, courage actually lies in the very same place as fear. Equanimity lies in the same place as imbalance by learning to turn towards what is. As human beings, we need to stay in touch. We need to stay in touch with ourselves and we need to know how to touch each other. Because it's by, by staying in touch that we find everything our hearts long for. Happiness, oneness, intimacy and depth. They're all born of feeding in touch, of staying in touch, of being able to meet with ease and an open heart all moments. We learn to stay in touch right where we are, in the moment that we're in. There's not actually a better moment to be awake. You know, this is the delusion of disconnection. And this is also the perpetuating force of disconnection. Feeling there's a better moment to be awake. You know, after, after I've got through my dullness, you know, or after this person who disturbs me isn't around any longer, you know, or uh, after my life is much more organized, or after I've got rid of this incredibly annoying neighbor, that's the right moment to stay. And then I'll be in touch. You know, then I'll really stay in touch. Really notice how that is the illusion that perpetuates disconnection, that there's a better moment. There isn't a better moment. The best moment to be awake is actually the moment that we're in. This is where we're asked to find contentment and to find well-being, to find understanding. No matter how much, you know, we think there might be a perfect moment a perfect world. This is kind of like chasing rainbows. 
I don't know about you, but you know, some time ago I surrendered totally the idea that I was ever going to have the perfect body, the perfect personality, the perfect life, and the perfect world. What a relief. <laughs> what a relief. <laughs> such, such good news. Isn't it? This is a tremendous news. It's so liberating to actually surrender that. You know, no matter how much you fix this moment, you can be sure life is going to bring you another moment that's going to ask you to be really awakened. You know, perfection is not the absence of the imperfect. And if we had perfection in our life, you know, where would we grow? Where would we be awake? Where would we actually be inspired to deepen? The moment that we're in, this is the moment that we're asked to stay in touch with right where we are, right with who we are, and it's where we find peace. May all beings live with clarity. May all beings rest in connectedness. May all beings deepen in understanding. If we could have a couple of minutes quietly together and then we'll have a walking period.